You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. All right, I think we should begin. Um, I want to welcome all of you to the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. I'm Vikram Nehru. I'm a senior associate here in the Bakri Chair for Southeast Asian Studies. And today's discussion is on Myanmar, new hope and grim realities in the land of pagodas. Um, the events over the past six months in Myanmar have been nothing short of stunning. This is a country, after all, that was under military rule for almost half a century, from 1962 <coughs> to 2011. And it was just five years ago, in 2007, that the world witnessed the harsh suppression of the so-called Saffron Revolution. Yet, Following a general election in 2010, the military regime was dissolved in 2011 and a civilian government installed. And just this month, after a by-election, 43 opposition National League for Democracy uh, candidates took their seats in parliament, uh, one of them being, of course, the iconic Aung San Suu Kyi. And progress has been made in negotiating ceasefires amongst virtually all the ethnic minority states except one, bringing to a halt, although we don't know how permanently, perhaps the longest-running civil war in the world. So the question on everyone's mind is, how and why did the sudden opening up in Myanmar take place? Are the changes that we've seen in Myanmar irreversible? What comes next? How does the country solve its huge economic challenges and resolve its ethnic minority problem? And what should be the role of the international economic community? And in particular, what is the stance of the United States towards Myanmar? So to answer these questions, we have an absolutely outstanding panel here today. I won't read out their detailed resumes. You have them with you. But let me introduce them. On my extreme right, we have... Professor David Steinberg, who's the Distinguished Professor of Asian Studies at Georgetown University. Tom Malinowski, who's the Washington Director of Human Rights Watch, to my right here. Anup Singh on my left, who's the Director for the Asian Pacific Department of the IMF. And Patrick Murphy, who's the Director for Mainland Southeast Asia in the State Department. And I'm particularly <coughs> grateful to Patrick for coming the last minute to uh, take the place of Joseph Yun, who's the Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, who couldn't come today. So thank you very much. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask the panelists a few questions. We're going to have a conversation, and then I'll open it up to the audience for, for questions after that. So I'm going to start with you, David. And this is the question which I guess is on everyone's minds. Why is Myanmar so important, and what were the reasons behind its sudden and dramatic opening up? Uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here and an honor to be on this panel. I think Myanmar is important for a variety of reasons that we have basically ignored until recently. By we, I mean the United States. In fact, we have had one particular uh, policy toward that country, which is human rights and democracy, but we have ignored the other reasons why it is important. It is important for democracy and human rights reasons. It's important because... Uh, one quarter of the population is below the uh, poverty line, one quarter is at the poverty line. 
So it's a very poor country, the poorest in Southeast Asia, uh, when it was, should have been the richest in Southeast Asia. Uh, it is strategically located. And the strategy did not uh, evolve out of our public discourse until uh, the Obama administration came in, in in 2009, in September. That was the first mention that I can find of China as an important factor in Myanmar issues. And, chi and Myanmar is, of course, split between India and China. It is of strategic interest to both for very well, they reach reasons. It's of interest to the United States because it uh, protects, in one sense, the Straits of Malacca, the uh, western uh, entrance to the Straits of Malacca, which is important to the United States. So for strategic reasons, there are issues. There are also, of course, economic issues, potentially there, a population that is poor, but it has a, um, a potential for natural resources that are enormous and not even fully explored yet. And so there's a, an American business interest as well. In terms of timing, you have a new administration, you have a new leader. The old leader was not approachable. Uh, was not listening to either new problems or new issues unless he brought them up first. Here you have a man, uh, President Thane Sane, who is accessible, who listens, who has been the first time in 50 years that you had a head of state critical of his own country and the, own, the country's policies. In his inaugural address, that address could have been given by any leader of almost any democratic country. We need to do more in education and health. We have to get rid of corruption. We have to do something about the minorities. So all of those things he has begun to follow up on. Now, it's not going to be easy because these uh, reforms are fragile. There's, there are elements within the administration and the military against them. Uh, there is also the question of the capacity of that government to implement the reforms that are policy but are not yet also in law yet. And uh, even if they were in law, whether the command of the administration will extend to the periphery the way it did in the uh, taught military command system uh, is an open question. So there are many issues to be resolved. But one more thing, and I mm -hmm. think this is important to remember. When you ask why, all along within that military, which has been vilified as being a bunch of thugs, um, with, had no interest in reform at all, only venal people serving their own interests. There have been people in the military concerned about just these problems, but they had no voice. Now they have a voice, and it is important that we understand who these people are so that we can relate to them and assist whenever it's appropriate. I'm going to come back to that point uh, perhaps later in the discussion, but I want to turn to Tom now. Tom, do you have anything to add to what uh, David said to those uh, first two questions? But also, can you cover for us what are the reasons behind the tensions between uh, the center and the ethnic minority states? And where are we currently in that particular dispute or set of disputes? Sure. Well, I, I think there's a lot more to be said about how, how we got here, but maybe we can get into that. I'm sure there'll be questions. Uh, from the audience on, on those questions and the role that our policies did or didn't play. It's an interesting uh, set of questions. But, but in terms of where we are now, and, and I know you asked about the ethnic question, but I want to start with, mm -hmm. with something broader, and that is that it, it's absolutely true that Burma has gone through remarkable, amazing changes in just the last few months. I, I spend most of my time now working on the Middle East, on 
Syria and Bahrain and Libya and Egypt. And I find myself using Burma as an example of hope uh, for people in countries that are going through far, uh, right now, far worse than what Burma is experiencing. Um, but that said, I think just to inject a, a, a small note of realism into the conversation, the changes we have seen are not necessarily the same as reforms. What we have seen are a series of steps taken by a very different kind of president um, in, in Burma on his own authority to open the country up, to reach out to the opposition, on his authority, release of political prisoners, on his authority, less restrictions on the media and on freedom of speech, um, on his authority, a decision to allow Aung San Suu Kyi remarkably to run for a few seats in the Burmese parliament. Um, and so the climate, in, in sit, particularly in the big cities in Rangoon, Mandalay, has been totally transformed by, by all of this. <clears throat> but these are not necessarily changes to the legal, political, and economic structure of the country. Um, and I would take issue, for example, with the statement that Burma is no longer under military rule. Um, the fundamental issue right now in Burma politically, um, the issue that Aung San Suu Kyi campaigned on and that will be the major point of contention in Burma over the next three years is a constitution that legally gives the military the authority to run all of the ministries that um, have anything to do with maintenance of public security in the country. So the police, the interior ministry, borders. Um, a constitution that says the military doesn't have to answer to the parliament. Um, it, its budget is not approved by the parliament. It doesn't have to answer to the judiciary. And at any point, the commander-in-chief of the military can remove the civilian president and the civilian government if he declares a state of emergency. Um, and you know, Aung San Suu Kyi's number one priority is to change this constitution. And it's going to be hard because one of the powers granted to the military by the constitution is the power to veto any changes to the constitution. Um, so watch out for a lot of drama. And the big showdown um, was not this election. This was not Burma's Berlin Wall moment, as some people have, have stated. Only 40-some seats were at stake. It's the 2015 election in which most of the seats in the parliament will be at stake. If there's a free and fair election in 2015, it's likely that the NLD will do extremely well again, um, and in a way that will threaten the interests not just of sort of the hardliners, people we identify as the hardliners in the government, but also some of Thane Sane's supporters, the more moderate, liberal-minded former military officers who, you know, I think do genuinely want to move the country forward, but also probably don't want to lose those elections in 2015. Um, so I would say, you know, the, the country is still arguably under at least partial military rule. And then in terms of the ethnic areas, the ethnic areas, the Shan state, the Kachin state, the Karen state, are unarguably under military rule. The civilian government has no sway over what happens there. It has no control over what the military does. Thane Sane, to his great credit, um, has on two occasions now at least um, asked the army to cease offensive operations in the Kachin state in the north. This is the one um, major conflict that is still underway between the army and the ethnic minorities. And the army has said, thanks very much for that advice, and it's continued to do uh, what it's been doing. And recently, the uh, army commander in the north has said that his troops are preparing to wipe out the Kachin independence army, the ethnic army there once 
uh, and for all. So, you know, again, a sign of a president who is, I think, genuinely trying to do the right thing, but there is no civilian control over the military um, in, in Burma. To an extent, it's still the other way around. Um, this is, you know, as you said, this is the longest-running civil war anywhere in the world. It's been going on in a way since the birth of, of Burma. It's rooted in long-standing tensions between the, the traditionally Burman-dominated governments in the center and the various ethnic minorities on the periphery. Um, the mistrust over the years has been intensified by uh, serious human rights violations committed by the Burmese military, which unfortunately continue uh, in areas of conflict. Um, and it's also a conflict about resources, uh, because most of the uh, most valuable natural resources of the country that everybody wants to exploit um, are found uh, in, uh, in these areas. Um, and so, you know, one of the incentives that the army has in trying to extend its control uh, over ethnic minority areas is that that gives it um, dominance over the, the most lucrative export industries uh, of the country, whether it's uh, timber, whether it's uh, gems, jade, um, energy, and, and, and so forth. And this gets back to the central problem that I mentioned at the beginning, um, and that is, is Burma going to develop into a democracy where civilians control the military rather than the other way around? Uh, control over resources is, is one of the determining factors in, in that struggle. Um, and as we think about what we are going to do in the coming year in terms of sanctions, in terms of allowing and encouraging American business to uh, help develop Burma's economy, this is going to be a very important factor. For me, the bottom line is I want American companies and Western companies to play a role uh, in, in the coming years in helping to develop Burma's economy. But I want the benefits of foreign trade and investment to flow to the good guys in Burma and not to the bad guys. I want it to flow to real business people in the cities of Burma who are developing industries from which ordinary Burmese people are going to benefit that will help modernize the economy. I don't want those proceeds to be flowing directly, or certainly not first, um, to the military, to companies owned by the military, uh, to projects that are, uh, are going to basically exploit the natural resources of areas that are still under conflict, and in a way that will continue to diminish the military's dependence on civilians. The more the military has access to its own sources of revenue, the more it controls those most lucrative export industries, the less incentive it has to, to listen to a president like Thane Sane when he says, stand down, cease fire, enter into negotiations. So that's a critical policy issue for us going forward. It's not the same kind of sanctions issue we faced over the last 20 years, but it's very, very important if we want to see Burma succeed through this incredibly fragile period of the next three years. Thanks. Well, thank you, Tom. Um, well, we've heard uh, uh, David talk about uh, the economic situation in the country, and you've just talked about the dominance of the role of the military and its impact on exports and in in industries and so forth. And the IMF has just been to Myanmar, and it's uh, just issued a, a report, a staff report, which is available incidentally on the web. What did the IMF find? What is the state of the economy, and what do you see as the principal economic challenges in Oak? All right, Vikram, thank you very much. Well, there's no doubt that... Um, Myanmar is in a really remarkable transition. 
uh, it's got many advantages, as we pointed out in our staff report. It's got a young labor force. It is surrounded by a very dynamic um, countries. It's got many positive aspects. It's in the ASEAN community, which, as you know, is preparing to help Myanmar as much as possible. There's certainly a lot of lessons within ASEAN as to how to do these reforms. Uh, beyond that, the government itself has announced some pretty remarkable objectives, uh, which you probably know. They've, said they've started on the exchange rate reform. They said they want to complete this process by the end of 2013. Uh, they've said they want to... Uh, they're also focusing on poverty. They recognize they have a certain poverty level. They want to bring this down to a certain number, uh, I think 16% by 2015. So there's a lot that they want to do, and as we know from other experiences, uh, it's a challenge. But let me just step back for a moment and say, you know, what do we advise them? Not just the IMF, but everyone wants to advise them. You have countries preparing to do what they can to try and address their external debt problem. So the issue is, I just step back, what should a country like Myanmar do? There are a lot of lessons from other experiences. And we've done a study in the IMF, not related to Myanmar, but I think it has important lessons. You look at countries, especially poor or fragile or post-conflict economies, and you look at their informal sectors in their economies, what you may call you may call underground economies, but informal sectors. There's no doubt that a country like Myanmar, partly because of its structure over time, has a fragmented economy with a lot of informal sectors. Now, what the lessons of experience tell us very clearly is that if you really want to have productivity growth, you want to have long-term economic development, you want to create jobs and do this in a way that builds inclusiveness, reduces disparities. You've got to build institutions with governance and some transparency. And so if you and in our study we looked at countries that have tried to address and reduce their informal sectors, what we call the underground economies, and those that do this through building institutions, do lay the foundation for longer-term productivity growth, reducing disparities, and building an economy that can then prosper itself. It can be. So I think as you look at what Myanmar needs to do, I would say for many reasons, partly what we've heard from my colleague just now, is to build institutions with governance, and being an economist, I would say it is very important that you build economic institutions. Everything from fighting inflation, they have had inflation in the past. Look at sectors, the financial sector, look at agriculture. What we've learned from other countries is the importance of giving titles to private agents, for example, in agriculture, and it is good that Myanmar has already announced that it will undertake a land reform and they will give titles to farmers. So I'm saying there are signs that in the announcements 
and objectives that we've heard and seen in Myanmar. They are trying to build institutions. They've given early prominence to a new central bank law, to a foreign direct investment law, as I mentioned, to land reform. And I think as you look at donors and ourselves, it's very important, therefore, to help them build institutions, especially economic institutions, because our research tells us that countries that can address their informal sectors, underground economies, are those that are really going to succeed over time and build a productivity improvement that will last and will not be short-term. And I think this is where we need to focus on building institutions. Okay, we'll come back and I think explore some of these points that you've made in greater depth uh, during the conversation. But I want to turn to Patrick now. Patrick, um, there's been this uh, shift in American foreign policy towards Asia, the rebalancing of American foreign policy. Where does Myanmar figure in that policy? And what is now America's policy towards Myanmar? Well, the country figures quite prominently, in fact. Uh, and I think another way of phrasing the question, is this an interesting time? And I would respond, when it comes to Burma, it's always an interesting time. This is a country with a long, rich history, uh, a very abundant culture, and diverse peoples. And the interesting aspect uh, about its modern history is that the United States has been there since the beginning. If you travel to Burma, you will see that the license plates for the diplomatic corps are assigned in order of recognition of the country's independence. And the United States has always been very proud that we bear license plate CD number one. We were that first country to recognize independence, and we've been there uninterrupted since independence in the 1940s. This speaks, I think, to the country's greatest asset, and that is its people. And therein lies our national interests. It's not necessarily the narrative that people frequently assign to the country, its geostrategic importance, its abundant resources. It is the aspirations of its people, a more democratic, prosperous, freer nation. And our national interests match very closely those aspirations. Why? Because anything less than stable, prosperous, freer spells trouble for the region, and it spells trouble for the country's population of roughly 60 million inhabitants, uh, a figure that may be higher if the coming census produces accurate results. We want to see this kind of future for the country because it means so much for the region. And I think that is where it comes around to the shift, the pivot that you refer to in our policy last year. As the President and the Secretary of State announced, we were beginning a process of realigning our resources. Why? Because the Asia-Pacific region is very, very important for the United States, across the board, for security, for trade, for our relationship with the regional architecture, ASEAN centrality, human rights and democracy, uh, disaster uh, relief and preparedness and humanitarian assistance. And I dare say that Burma matches all of these criteria across the board. And that's why, uh, in part, we uh, launched an engagement policy nearly three years ago. And we like to think that that is working. It's a principled engagement policy with eyes wide open. We want to dialogue with this country, with this government, and its stakeholders. And we also want to address its shortcomings. Uh, I fully agree 
some of the panel have referred to dramatic change. It is nothing short of dramatic in that country. And I've been working personally on the country on and off for the past two decades, as have several others up here. And these changes over the last, say, 18 months are indeed very dramatic. Uh, it's quite inconceivable to imagine just 18 months ago that the pro-democracy icon, Aung San Suu Kyi, who was under house arrest at the time, would in short order become a member of parliament, along with many of her cohort. It's a fabulous, unanticipated development, and it's one we want to support. However, the changes in Burma, it's important, I think, from our perspective to ask, what is it and what is it not? What it is, is important. It is significant. These changes are fundamentally changing the lives in everyday Burmese. The changes that we see in parliament, the changes that we see from a courageous leader, President Thane Sein, and several of his colleagues, the courage of Aung San Suu Kyi and the National League for Democracy to engage in a dialogue, and in some regard, forget some of the, the very past difficulties. This is all courage, and this is good, and it's meaningful. What it's not, however, is a change, is a reform that is guaranteed. It's fragile, and it's incomplete. There are some areas that we continue to call for important progress on human rights, unresolved conflict, the nation's troubling relationship with North Korea on the military side in particular. And we will keep up that dialogue, and our policy will reflect those kind of objectives. We want to encourage the reform. We've announced many changes. There are more to come. Um, but we will do this carefully, and we will do it in a calibrated fashion to make sure we are doing right uh, by the Burmese people. Thank you, Patrick. <clears throat> and I want to come back to you now, uh, David, because uh, both Tom and uh, Patrick have cautioned us. This is fragile. This is still a military-dominated government. It's still really military rule. So I guess one question that, that, that surely uh, should be uppermost in our minds is, what is the background of somebody like General Tencent or Shweman, who is the Speaker of the Lower House of Parliament and another very key figure in this, in, in, in this uh, new arrangement that we have? Um, you know, where do they, do they have democratic instincts? And if so, where do they come from? Uh, do they have views that overlap with Aung San Suu Kyi, or are they very different from her views? Do you have any sense of uh, these questions? Well, there are a whole series of issues here that I think are important. Uh, Tom is quite right when he says that uh, the military is still in control. They've designed a system for perpetual control. Now, that does not mean you can't have progress within that perpetual control, better livelihood for people, more freedom, more space for the, from people from the government, and so forth. But make no mistake. The, the Constitution was written, and the military for 50 years have said, in fact, we will want to remain in power for as long as we can, directly or indirectly. So the term democracy has to be modified. The military call it a disciplined, flourishing democracy. Any adjectivally modified democracy is obviously questionable, whether it's people's or guided or disciplined uh, uh, functioning democracy. So that is an issue. Um, on the background of these people, uh, they're all military. Thane Sein has a reputation as being uncorrupt. Uh, he is supposed to be more moderate. Certainly, he has met with 
Burmese uh, academics and others who never would have, Fan uh, Shui, the previous ruler, would never have met. And he has been more open. And the relationship with Aung San Suu Kyi is an element of that. That may be a tactical relationship on both sides. He needs her, in a way, on the National League for Democracy or democratic elements or elements espousing democracy for his own purposes. She needs to be part of the system. She has made a tactical choice by trying to go into the, the parliament. Uh, that's a decision that she could have stood above the situation and been the sort of the moral force, or she could participate in the, uh, in the process. Obviously, she has thought about that very carefully and has reached her own conclusions. Uh, but they both have interests. She has said continuously, my father founded the military, I believe in the military. But she also, as part of her platform in the National League for Democracy in 1989, says civilian control over the, the military is, an, is a critical element. The military obviously does not believe that, though there are tensions there. These tensions will come out in 2015. That is the critical time. If she were wanted to be president, the Constitution would have to be changed because under Chapter 3, Article 59, she cannot be president. So the military would have to agree to a constitutional amendment, 75% vote in the, in the parliament. Military have 25% active duty seats, so they would have to go along. Even if their party, the, the uh, Union Solidarity and Development Party, had no seats, they still couldn't change that. So her, she has to decide if she wants that role and wants the role for democracy, how she is going to satisfy the military that she is not a potential threat to their interests. And that is something that she has to be thinking about. Um, first of all, do you have anything to, to, to add to that point that, uh, that David made? Uh, and, and the other question is... Uh, this fact that the military is not monolithic. Uh, there are sort of obviously different groups within the military. You have a group that is perhaps reformist-minded. Um, so a couple of questions. First of all, uh, um, Tom, what, do you read uh, anything into this, into this fact that the, uh, the parliament has 25% of the seats reserved for the military? And apparently all the incumbents were removed recently and senior military officers took their place. Some, some, yeah, some of them. Yeah. Uh, do you read anything into this, uh, into this move, first of all? And secondly, who do you see as being the principal opponents uh, to the change, uh, to this increased space that David was talking about? Well, I can't read the tea leaves. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think that the most obvious explanation is that the... You know, the, the election was had a remarkable result in, in, in that um, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi's party, the NLD, won every um, contested seat. And you know, for 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 those who admire her and her cause and what she's trying to achieve, that is both good news and bad news. Right? The good news is, hey, they won. Um, the bad news is that the, the, the military, which does not want to lose the power it has, I, I think got a glimpse in that election of what is likely to happen uh, to them in the, the election that I think we all agree is the critical test in, in 2015. 
if things keep going as they've been going and that election is as free and fair as this one was, they may lose just about everything, at least in terms of their hold on the civilian institutions uh, of government. A lot of military officers, you know, uh, were, were told by their commanders, guess what? You have to take off your uniform now. You have to lose the lifetime security of being a major, a colonel, a general in the army because we're transferring to a quote-unquote civilian system. And your consolation prize is you get to serve in the Burmese parliament or you get to be a deputy minister in, in the agriculture ministry or whatever. And they're now looking at 2015 and they're thinking we may lose that as well, right? Um, and so, you know, it may well be that the sort of appointment of more senior people to some of these posts is a message from the commander of the military that they, they're going to stand up for their interests here. We don't know. But, but there is, I think, a, 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 a showdown that's brewing between an opposition that really is determined for historical and principled reasons to change that constitutional structure and to establish a more genuinely democratic system and a military that has been in charge for 50 years and doesn't want to lose what it has. And I don't think that, you know, we have very good leaders in Burma. It's a country that's blessed with both Thane Sein and Aung San Suu Kyi with very wise leaders who are able to compromise and see the best interests of their country. But there, are, but there is an, sort of an irreconcilable conflict at, at, the, at the heart of this situation that, that is, you know, it, it could go either way. And that's why I think all of us say the progress is not irreversible. But isn't it interesting, for example, that in the election in Nepidao itself, now Nepidao is filled with civil servants, people who are in the government, the military, and the NLD won there. Yeah, that scares them. Yeah. They won in the military before, too. They did, yeah. 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 Back in... Now, you wanted to say something, David. Yes, in relation to the senior military replacement that you mentioned. When I was in Nepidao in early March, a senior official said, you have to understand this is the military's end game. This is his term, not mine. I said, end game? What do you mean? He said, these younger people in the military, they have been told all their lives that the civilians are corrupt, they're incompetent, they're no good, you can't trust them. And all of a sudden, you've got these people working with the civilians. And over time, that attitude of these younger military toward the civilians will change. And the military will feel more comfortable in terms of releasing power. That's a very interesting idea. But you've just raised the question that then the replacement by more senior military. Right. Will that occur in the short term? And the answer may be no. Right. Um, I wanted to sort of turn to Patrick, actually, to ask him a question. Uh, uh, you, you, know, you talked about American interests in Myanmar. Uh, but what's been very clear over the last several years has been that the Chinese, China has been, uh, has had a large number of investments, a large number of state enterprises have been involved in Myanmar. Um, and the Chinese continue to have a huge interest. They're building this big uh, gas and oil pipeline from the south all the way into Yunnan and Sichuan. Um, what is your assessment of China's future role uh, in, this, in this country? And not just China's. What about, what about uh, India's uh, role as well? Well, these are important neighbors. There, there's no question for, for Burma, both India and China, but uh, there are others as well. Let's not discount Thailand and Bangladesh and Laos and, and the rest of the broader neighborhood. 
Uh, we think it's important for Burma to have good relations with all of its neighbors and to become a responsible member of the international community. I mentioned earlier the regional architecture. Not only do we, uh, we talk about ASEAN centrality and the importance we place on our own relationship with the institution of which Burma has been a member for a number of years and will uh, presumably uh, chair the organization at some point in the future, um, but also ASEAN now is the fulcrum for all of Asia and U.S. engagement. The East Asia Summit, which President Obama participated in last year for the first time, bringing the United States um, uh, into membership of this important organization. Th this is all very important for us, and we think uh, collaboration and coordination with all of the countries, all of the partners of ASEAN, including China, is very important. Uh, we have uh, maintained a dialogue with China on Burma over the years. And we now, I, I think as most know, have a special representative and policy coordinator for Burma, Ambassador Derek Mitchell. And in answering this question, I put emphasis on the policy coordination. It's not only with our stakeholders here in Washington, but with those among the international community as well, including countries like China. Um, so it's an important dialogue we maintain. Coordination is very key. Some of these countries that you cite have asked us for years to engage with Burma. We've now done that. And uh, so we have a meeting ground of sorts, if you will, on, uh, on discussing how best to coordinate the international community vis-a-vis -vis our approach to the country. But I, I want to sort of uh, uh, probe this issue a little bit further, if I may. Maybe, Tom, you could answer this question. There certainly seems to be a sense in Myanmar that a large amount of the corruption and the enrichment that's taken place amongst the few has been because of favors that have been doled out to investors. And some of these investors have been Chinese investors. Mm -hmm. So there has been uh, an association, whether right or wrong, I don't know, an association between some of the corruption that's taken place in the country and the role of uh, Chinese economic interests in the country. First of all, do you agree with that view? Uh, and what now is going to be the impact of these recent changes on a country like China, which has such significant interests? Well, I do agree. Um, you know, a few years ago, one of the arguments that some people made against Western sanctions uh, that were imposed on Burma was that it would only drive Burma into the hands of the Chinese economically. And, and it turned out that from the point of view of promoting change in Burma, that was the best thing that could have happened because they were driven into the arms of the Chinese and they did not like how that felt for precisely the reason that you mentioned. Um, Chinese investment was associated with corruption. It was seen by um, people with a, a sense of nationalism both in the opposition and in the Burmese military as something that was bad for, for the country's interests and helped to contribute to the desire of a new generation of Burmese leaders to reach out to alternative partners, particularly to the United States. And I think the administration played that moment when a new Burmese leadership was beginning to reach out extremely well, um, took advantage of their desire, their desire to rebalance, just as our administration was rebalancing uh, in Asia, uh, and, and helped to steer them in the direction um, that, uh, that, that we have seen. Look, Burma and China are going to remain um, uh, linked in, in, in numerous ways, including economically. Aung San Suu Kyi has been very, very clear. She expects all of Burma's neighbors to be friends, including China. China will continue to have major economic interests in the country. 
But I also think that as our, you know, as we begin to think about easing sanctions, as American companies begin to go in, it's important to learn the lesson of that experience and and recognize that, you know, the comparative advantage that American companies are going to have is that they're going to have much higher standards, hopefully, and hopefully our government will make sure that they have higher standards than Chinese companies that went in when were perceived as raping the environment and building dams that would destroy the Irrawaddy River and pulling resources out and, you know, in a way that didn't really benefit ordinary people. Um, we have a chance here to do it differently. Um, the danger is that there will be this gold rush into Burma before we have the kind of institutional reform that you were talking about and, you know, the, the resentment that we saw generated by Chinese investment is going to be felt about all foreign investment, and I, I hope that we don't see that happen. David? Uh, I've just completed a book with the Chinese College on China-Myanmar relations, mm. and it seems to me very clear that there is a rising anti-Chinese sentiment. There's no doubt about it. Their overwhelming presence is important. It is worrisome to the Burmese. Did it play a role in the, in, in the opening up? I think it did play a role. How much of a role, I'm not sure, but I did think it played a role. But the danger is something that the World Bank and the IMF and the other donors have to consider, and that is the middle class in Burma is going to be Chinese, or it's going to be Sino-Burmese, mm -hmm. and that is dangerous for the Burma. The reason the Burma went socialist originally was because the economy was not in Burman hands. It was in foreign hands, the Brits, the, China, the Indians, and the Chinese. If the economy is once again seen to be in foreign hands, in Chinese hands, there could be, A, ethnic riots, as there were in 1967, for different reasons, of course, but put, taken out on the Chinese, and, B, a return to some sort of state capitalism that will try and get the economy back under Burman control. So that's something that we, we must uh, watch. And I think the Chinese role will be important. There is, in last May, I think it was, they signed a comprehensive uh, cooperative agreement between China and Myanmar. This is the first time that has been signed. It's signed with other countries, but not with, with Myanmar. And that is important, uh, indicating something. It's very interesting also that the government has confirmed that it will honor all agreements that have been signed with China. They don't intend to renege on any of those agreements. I want to come to you, Anoop, and I'm going to ask you three questions, which is a bit of a challenge because I want your answers to be short. Uh, <laughs> first is, you know, what can and should the country do in order to ensure that investments in natural resources don't create social and environmental problems? Right? This is clearly where the country's comparative advantage is, but there's a real concern that investments in these areas can lead to huge environmental degradation. What can the country do to stop that? Secondly, how do you deal with this problem that, uh, that David mentioned about, uh, uh, and you talked about inclusiveness, the fact that if the middle class grows, it might uh, actually uh, result in, in, in resentment by the Burmese population. So how do you ensure inclusiveness in, in, in this economy? And thirdly, uh, the question which I have as an economist is that any country which is blessed with natural resources is also cursed with natural resources because it tends to impact the exchange rate and as a result, manufacturing and agriculture find it very difficult to develop given the fact that the prices tend to be very, uh, very unattractive for these two sectors. So what advice is the fund giving uh, the government to deal with these uh, huge 
huge challenges. All right, but those are fundamental <laughs> questions. Uh, you want short answers. <laughs> I think, to put it in a um, nutshell, um, partly for natural resource reasons, but more generally, you can be sure that Myanmar will not be lacking foreign resources. <laughs> so I think the challenge is going to be, as has been seen by other countries, how do you get these resources into the economy and reduce but not increase disparities that most economies, including Myanmar, certainly have. If you look at the formal sectors of Myanmar's economy, the financial sector, agriculture, and I can go on and on, these formal sectors are small. If you look at what goes on beyond these sectors, look at the banking system, you have an informal, or what I would call a shadow banking system, which is what many countries have. And I would say the challenge Myanmar faces, not just from an environmental point of view, but from a social point of view, but from the point of view of being able to develop a sustainable growth rate, is to ensure that these resources that come into Myanmar ultimately lead to an opening up of other sectors of the economy so that the money can be used in other sectors. For example, if you look at where the exchange rate system is now, you might ask why does the shadow or the parallel exchange rate appreciate and strengthen? And the answer is very simple. Money comes in in the formal sector. Most exchange payments are restricted or can't be made in a formal way, and therefore money comes in, but they cannot be used by other agents who want to make payments, who want to use resources coming in. So by opening up the exchange system, by unifying the exchange rate system, this can begin to be overcome. So I would say the most important challenge countries like Myanmar face is how do you integrate the domestic economic systems that are a legacy of the past? And in order to make it more inclusive, you've got to build up institutions and the governance in integrated societies and not through markets that are segmented and separate. All right, thank you. Um, I am going to open up the floor to questions after this last question. So think of the question that you want to ask uh, while uh, Patrick is, but listen to him as well, while, while Patrick is answering this last question, <laughs> uh, and then I'll open it up to the floor. Uh, Patrick, uh, we've heard uh, uh, Tom, in fact, in his first, uh, in, in the answer to the first question, talk about the in importance of foreign investment and how that will uh, change uh, the way the, the, change the dynamics in the country. We've talked, uh, Anup has just talked about how resources should be used in the economy and how should, they should flow through. But one of the big concerns is that sanctions tend to inhibit all of these positive developments. Um, do, first of all, do you agree that the current sanctions in place actually inhibit some of the responses that this economy might otherwise have to the opening up? And how soon can these sanctions be removed? What exactly is the government's policy on this? You know, I think in answering a question about, about sanctions in Burma, it's, it's important to acknowledge that the package 
of sanctions and restrictions are very complex, probably because Burma itself is very complex. Uh, in fact, uh, on what other country in the world could we have a panel discussion where half of the panel is referring to the country by one name and the other half you know, by another name? I noticed that, yes. <laughs> in that regard, let, me, let me answer the first question I'm likely to get. It is U.S. policy to refer to it as Burma. Uh, that may be the subject of uh, future discussions with stakeholders, official and unofficial, inside the country. But I'll refer to the country uh, as Burma today. Um, you know, we've had in place for several decades uh, many restrictions on the country, and, and they had uh, very specific intent uh, to try and change behavior, performance, improve the human rights situation, and indeed affect some of the very reforms we're seeing now. So when we look at the overall uh, history for the past two decades, we think there's been a measure of success. We also believe it's time for some change and some adjustments. Secretary Clinton has very clearly announced a policy of action for action. As reforms take place, as there is a progress addressing our core concerns, the concerns of the international community, and getting to the aspirations of the Burmese people, we will respond accordingly. Just to cite a few examples, because we already have taken many and implemented many adjustments. Last October, following the release of a number of political <coughs> prisoners, uh, the Secretary announced uh, some very important changes, resuming our cooperation on uh, counter-narcotics, resuming cooperation on the recovery of uh, U.S. personnel uh, missing from the World War II period, uh, and also um, you know, paving the way for, uh, for a few other things like assistance from the international financial uh, institutions. Um, that was very important. In January, there was another substantial, very substantial release of political prisoners. And we announced our intent to elevate and reestablish the diplomatic relationship at the level of ambassador. And we expect that to come to fruition very, very soon. Uh, I can't speak for the White House, but I suspect in the coming weeks uh, th that will come to fruition. Following the very successful electoral process in April, which, although we don't have international standards to apply here because there wasn't a full process of observation and monitoring, the process, uh, by and large, was much improved from the November 2010 election, which uh, we, of course, had identified as a bit of a sham at the time. This was much improved, and, of course, the, resu the results speak volumes for the country. Uh, we responded with a series of things that we are, we are changing. We are reestablishing a U.S. aid mission in Burma. We have paved the way for a normalization of the UNDP program with the country. And we're making other changes. Most importantly, we have referred to uh, coming changes with regard to our restrictions on new investment and the transfer of financial services. Um, let me come around full circle. This is complex. To really describe all of our sanctions and how they can be adjusted, I'd need a team of 20, 20 lawyers and the rest of the day to talk. In fact, I chair an interagency a committee that's comprised of about 20 lawyers. You can imagine what those discussions are like. Um, you can point to a whole variety of executive orders, legislated acts. Some of them are redundant. Some of them are overlapping. Some of them, some may argue, are in fact uh, inconsistent and maybe inconsistent with developments in, in Burma over the last two years. So how to fix it? Uh, it's not easy. We want to do what's right, again, by the Burmese people. We want to be calibrated. We want to be careful. Uh, and we want to do this in uh, extension of U.S. national interests. We're not looking at uh, any other country's posture. 
We are trying to coordinate closely, but we are looking at our national interests. And we think that this will be important for the country as we make adjustments. We are consulting very, very closely with our most important partner on this process, and that's Congress. The interesting story about sanctions in Burma over the years is this has been very bipartisan. I can think of no other foreign policy issue that can generate a vote in the Senate of 99 to 1. And there are several cases of that on Burma. We think there's bipartisanship going forward. There are many different voices. We're consulting very closely on how best to do this. But we think soon you will hear from us in exactly what we are going to do when it comes to perhaps what the country, what business, what human rights groups, other stakeholders are most interested in, and that is our announcement that we will make adjustments to financial restrictions and investment restrictions. So that will be coming soon. Good, and I hope that in that discussion, one of the criteria that you use is, you know, to what extent can our actions uh, help the reformers, actually strengthen the hands of the reformers uh, in the country? That's a key issue. Yep. If I could, Vikram, I think that's a very good point, and that's, uh, it's very much one of our two objectives. We want to support this reform process. The very courageous individuals who have taken great risk to launch, support, and sustain reform. On the other hand, uh, not everyone has good intentions inside that country. And there are those who uh, would intend to obstruct this process and continue a disregard for basic human rights and perpetuate other challenges. And it is a matter of our policy that we have targeted and designated those individuals and entities, and we will continue to do so. And in fact, we anticipate, we are working now on shaping that process to refine it, perhaps identify additional individuals and organizations who are not being helpful to the process. We do not believe they should benefit from American largesse, whether it's official, whether it's commercial. And so that will be part of our two-pronged approach going forward. Support reform and make clear that those who obstruct will not benefit from the process going forward. Great. All right. Okay, we're ready to open up uh, uh, the floor to questions. I just want to make two points. First, I'm very conscious of the fact that this is a somewhat gender imbalanced panel, so I'm going to give priority to uh, persons of the stronger gender. Um, and secondly, I'm going to put my panelists on notice that at the end of this uh, session of a, a set of questions from you, I'm going to ask them to give a one-minute summary statement in case they want to have any last a uh, few comments uh, to impart to us. All right, so let's have hands. Please indicate who you are and what your affiliation is. <laughs> Do I see a person of the strong agenda? Well, yes, here. please, yes. Two, two folks here. Just wait for the mic. Thank you. Okay. Hi, my name is Alana Yuretsky. I'm, uh, I teach at George Washington. Um, recognizing that relations between... Uh, China and cooperation between China and Burma are, are, are important. And a lot of that cooperation has happened on the borders, in the border regions of China and Burma, specifically uh, along the borders of the Kachin state, the Shan state, um, areas that really have had no access to economic resources. And they've been, their existence has been dependent upon their economic relationship with China, often through the trafficking or passing through of illicit goods. Um, so I'm wondering, sort of, what, what do you see is happening to, um, to, the, to, to the border regions, to the, the, the independent ethnic states, um, and how do you sort of maintain that, 
that, uh, that stability that's been gained through those cross-border relations uh, in, in that region along there. Right. So let's have two more questions before I turn to the panel. There were two ladies here. Can you come up here, please, Raymond? Uh, thank you. Vanessa Kulik, at Department of State, Bureau for Conflict Stabilization Operations. Um, I was wondering, as you guys have noticed, or as, as uh, has mentioned, the reconciliation process is fragile at best. And the, uh, the president has put forth his strategy in terms of ceasefire, economic development, and then political dialogue, where the ethnic groups um, have collectively and individually uh, focused on political dialogue. Uh, what role do you see for the international community and specifically the United States government for trying to bridge those disparate viewpoints and also propel the reconciliation process beyond the fragile ceasefires? Thank you. One more right next to you. There was uh, somebody there. Yes. Thank you. I'm Kelly Curry from Project 2049 Institute. And this is just to follow up on the last um, question that was asked, actually. When you have a situation, as you do in Burma, where the government is both a party to the conflict and a development actor, and they are pushing economic development as a primary um, so part of the solution for conflict um, with these ethnic nationalities, and then on the other side, you have ethnic nationalities that are extremely concerned about the emergence of a Burman-driven consensus that is crafted in Naypyidaw and Yangon and leaves them out of the conversation. How does lifting of both U.S. and European sanctions that allow large-scale investment into the country and the kind of advice that the international financial institutions and assistance that's coming in, how, how can governments make good decisions that don't exacerbate the problems that my, co my colleague and, uh, Vanessa just identified. Thank you very much. Well, all three uh, to do with the ethnic minority states, uh, to do with the negotiations, economic development, how do you maintain stability. Tom, you want to take a shot at it? Then I'll turn to you, David. Okay. I'll, I don't think I can do justice to every new, every, compl every complex nuance uh, <laughs> embedded in those questions. But you know, I think, beginning with, with Kelly, it's true when you talk to government officials in Burma about the problems in the ethnic areas, their, their usual approach is to say, well, the, the solution to all this is economic development, right? If we can just give these people jobs and opportunities, and, you know, then everything will be worked out. And I, th I think that is absolutely not the case because I think if you begin with economic development, in areas that are uh, still experiencing conflict, some of them, um, and w where you, you have no political solution and, of course, no reform of the sort that we've seen in central Burma, um, you're going to have the wrong kind of economic development and, in fact, a continuation of the kinds of human rights abuses that organizations like mine have reported on for many years. Forced labor in Burma is not just a conflict-driven phenomenon. It is also a... Uh, bad development-driven phenomenon. The, when the army needs people to work on a project, it goes and gets them at gunpoint. Um, so, you know, to have the right kind of economic development and, and ultimately stability in these areas, you need to have a political solution that goes beyond what I think one of the questioners termed the fragile ceasefires that now exist. A ceasefire is great. People are not killing each other for a while. But what we have not had, even in the areas where there's a ceasefire, is a, a political settlement that addresses 
the underlying grievances that led to the conflict in the first place. Now, I'm optimistic that they can be resolved. I think you know, this is one of those conflicts where, where I think all of us can probably describe the outlines of, of a solution that will preserve Burma as a uh, unified but federal state uh, in which the ethnic minority peoples can feel that they are part of a con larger country, but also that, 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 you know, that, that they have a say in, in how their, uh, their areas are run. So I think it's achievable, but I do think that the emphasis has to be on achieving that. And then a final point, someone you know, talked about the lack of economic development in some of these areas. Actually, there are some areas on the borders of China that are probably the richest in all of Burma. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the Wa state, which you know, 20 years ago we would have said, oh, the headhunters, right? Right. Um, <laughs> but they, they have a little commodity that grows there that is very lucrative. <laughs> um, and, and one that doesn't grow but that they produce in labs. Um, and, you know, and, and so they've got stuff there that, you know, would, you know, in the middle of the jungle that looks like Las Vegas. Um, and, you know, one of my worries, very separate from everything else we've talked about, is that we settle everything else in Burma and you still have powerful narco uh, drug lords, you know, who have a lot of money and a lot of guns, and eventually someone's going to go after them and they're not going to like it. And, you know, I hope we actually don't push that problem to be solved First, I would keep it for last because I want to. I want to solve the political crisis in Burma before we get there. So you can't solve that problem unless you have a strong, a strong government to begin with. A legitimate government, legitimate government. one that, that 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 actually is respected and supported by the people who live in those areas. Then you can begin to go after these folks. So Patrick, you know, I, I know that like drug cooperation is a big part of like what we're beginning to talk to them about. And it's great to talk about it, but I would be very careful about getting back into the kind of war on drugs-driven policy that we had in Burma before this whole political drama began in the 1980s. David, I want to turn to you, but I want to add one more question to the three that, that you had. What significance do you attach to the fact that the president himself has taken over leadership of the negotiations now with the uh, ethnic minorities? Uh, on the last point, I think that is very important because for the first time you have a real ceasefire with the Karen, which is the longest rebellion in the modern world. And it is because of him and his negotiator, who has been got a very good reputation. And the Japanese and the Norwegians are going on into that area in a big way to demonstrate that there are positive effects to ceasefires. But they're going back, I'm glad these questions came up because the I've been writing this for years. The essential problem facing that country is not democracy. The essential problem is some solution of the majority-minority issues that have plagued that country since independence under a civilian government, under a military government that made it worse, and under a present government that has been, until very recently, uh, quite ambivalent and did some rather bad things, but did one rather useful thing as well. On this side, on the, the question of China, China's policy toward uh, Myanmar is the same as China's policy toward North Korea. And that is a peaceful border, no refugees, and opportunities for Chinese business. That's the essential Chinese approach. And if there are refugees, if there are rebellions, if there are insurrections, if there are government offensives, this creates refugees as did in Kokang in August 2009 that the Chinese objected very strongly to. 
and in the Kachin state, we have a problem today that is uh, somewhat similar. So, but the, the, the problem with the minorities is also a problem for the United States. The minorities are seen to be supported by the West, and especially the United States. In part, that is a religious thing. The Kachin, for a large part, the Chin are essentially Christian. And they have contact with Christian communities. Even when Burma was cut off under the socialist government, they had contacts across the borders. Every country around Burma, except Laos, has supported rebellions and dissidents. We still support dissidents in Thailand through our democratic processes, not rebellions, but at least people who want to change that government in a, in a, uh, a, uh, a non-necessarily, non-necessarily a, a democratic way. But there are many people who so uh, feel very strongly about not reform, but rather regime change. It's not U.S. policy, I must say, now at least. So there are real problems connected with the U.S. involvement in this process. The WA state, yeah, is narcotics. Certainly this is very true. It's also partly built in now to the Chinese economic system. I wrote a piece once where I said, northern Burma is Baha Yunnan. It was the only thing the Singapore government took out of a piece I wrote for them. So, but this is a real problem, that it is integrated economically in large part with China. China. Uh, so the Chinese role there is, uh, is, is very, very important. Um, there's got to, there is one potential useful thing coming out of this new constitution that we haven't talked about, and that is the provincial legislatures, the state legislatures in the minority areas, the regional legislatures in the majority areas. But these do not have much power now, but they have the potential for articulating at a local level those concerns that the, the questioner just raised. How do you get uh, local people involved in the process of decision-making about some of these major environmental, social, economic issues? Potentially, it is there if, in fact, it is fostered. These potential, these regional um, uh, state legislatures have no capacity now. One of the things that ASEAN ought to do, one of the things the U.S. ought to do, is to try and build their capacity to represent their own people to the central government. That is a very sensitive issue. Patrick, do you want to respond to the drug uh, point raised by uh, Tom? Uh, well, I'm almost more than happy to respond to that. I, um, <laughs> I respond to several things, including that. But uh, if I could first uh, slightly disagree with my good friend, Professor Steinberg. We, we think democracy is very important for Burma. It's been a priority for, for good reasons, because prosperity, stability are all very closely linked, and of course human rights. I, I will agree, David, however, um, with, with one aspect there. For years, I, I have personally assessed that once the country made progress on democracy and governance issues, it would further expose the real fundamental sticky problem, and that is the, the ethnic challenges that have existed for more than 60 years. Uh, and and to, that's being charitable because, frankly, some of the problems have been around for centuries. Mm -hmm. And they are very, very profound. They're very, very difficult as well. We're encouraged by what we count as about eight ceasefire agreements. At the same time, they don't get at the fundamental political foundations for the conflict. Um, it's good to stop fighting and put arms down, but you have to resolve the problems. 
uh, we are equally concerned with the unraveling of one of the more significant long-standing ceasefire arrangements for the past two decades, and that's with uh, the Kachin and, and uh, renewed conflict there, which is creating a whole host of problems. Um, we think international humanitarian access is a priority, and it's something that we converse with very frequently with, with the government. There has been some UN and other access to Kachin State, uh, some of our own refugee experts uh, recently gained access to northern Rakhine State. There's been some uh, renewed access to parts of Karen State as examples, but we would like to see this regularized and become the norm, not the exception. Uh, so I really appreciate the three questions because we are focusing much more. Um, frankly, in the past, maybe we didn't enough, but we certainly are now in getting views from uh, ethnic representatives ethnic stakeholders. Um, you know, frankly, it's interesting that in our parlance we refer to them as minorities because when you look at these populations as a collective, it's actually quite significant. Um, I don't rule out the possibility that a, an actual accurate census could reveal that the country's ethnic minorities are collectively an ethnic majority. Um, but, but that's to tell you how complex it is. And I will be honest, we are hearing somewhat of a different narrative. When we look at the reforms, very significant, very palpable. Uh, many of us have experienced that going to Rangoon or Naypyidaw or Mandalay. You can see it, you can feel it. The easing of media restrictions, the parliamentary laws on allowing labor unions to form, civil society really starting to flourish and getting back to the, the 1950s that Professor Steinberg referred to when Burma was the rice, rice bowl of all of Asia, the uh, center of academic excellence. This population wants to renew and restore that reputation, and you can see that potential emerging now. At the same time, and this is the part where I'm being frank and honest, we are hearing from our, our friends in border areas that perhaps the reforms are, are a bit uneven and not reaching all parts of the country. Um, and it's important that, that distribution be even, um, and, and not only in the reforms, but in, in foreign assistance and commercial activity, when and if that renews. Uh, so this is a very, very important issue, and, and, but we also at the same time want to help those who are keen to progress inside the country. You know, not be entirely punitive simply because there's conflict, but to help them resolve. Actually, to illustrate your last point, it's interesting that today's news is that uh, striking wig workers have received a page, uh, pay hike. So that's... Uh, Kiss Mother's Day is coming. I'll speak for my mother. She would say this, right? Um, I just want to respond to counter-narcotics. Um, when I talk about renewing joint cooperation, it's very nascent. Until 2004, we did something called an annual joint opium yield survey. And it really gave an accurate picture of what the, uh, the uh, poppy, opium poppy cultivation uh, was like in terms of its, uh, its actual quantity. And, and that's the kind of thing we're talking about renewing, very nascent, somewhat in the confidence-building category, um, because uh, I think Tom Alanowski does, does flag some concerns with practices in the past at how central authorities tried to get at the narcotics problem. Good. All right, I'll be a little bit more even-handed now when it comes to gender. <laughs> yes, please, gentleman at the back and the gentleman at the front. <laughs> I'm Mr. Lloyd from the University of Maryland and a native of Southeast Asia. Um, do you see in Aung San Suu Kyi 
in her person as a present version of the Philippines Corazon Aquino. And number two, um, Burma being geographically part of Southeast Asia. Do you see Burma in the years to come that uh, she could be a part of the ASEAN uh, as soon as uh, she could establish her government? Because ASEAN is spreading so fast, even uh, Papua New Guinea is uh, on the way of uh, applying. Uh, I've, um, Laos and Cambodia is now part, but uh, what about Burma? Do you see Burma to be part of ASEAN in the future? Burma is already part of ASEAN, and the country that's applying is Timor-Lesh, not Papua New Guinea. But your first question is a very good one, and we'll come to it in a second. There was somebody else. Yes, gentleman here. Mr. Ella. Thank you. I'm Tom Reckford with the Malaysia America Society and the World Affairs Council. Um, I'm also, uh, even though I'm a man, I'm also going to ask about uh, a woman, Aung San Suu Kyi. Uh, David has known her personally for a very long time. Uh, I wonder what kind of a leader she is, uh, to what extent she will be willing to compromise if she ever did have a chance uh, to be the leader of Burma, what kind of leader she would be. Uh, many of us, of course, have seen the movie, The Lady, but I have a feeling we have a lot more to learn uh, about Aung San Suu Kyi. Gentlemen here. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm Jim Michael. I'm a consultant in development cooperation with a focus on governance. It seems to me that there is some tension that I'm hearing uh, within the panel between economic governance, which needs to move forward so that you can have a more inclusive economy, and political governance, which may, at the present structure, cause the beneficiaries of improved economic governance to be those who have political power and will have increased incentives to want to retain it. And... <laughs> Uh, of course, these are issues that have to be dealt with primarily and will be, be determined primarily from within uh, the country and not uh, from outside, but the international influence and the sequencing and how, how you ease up and how you support the democratic processes and so on will have some influence on it. And I wonder how this tension is seen by the members of the panel. Thank you. Excellent question. All right. Uh, who would like to go first on uh, Aung San Suu Kyi? Why don't you uh, speak first? And Tom, perhaps you can add to that. Aung San Suu Kyi is you know, the icon for democracy in the world. There's no question about that. She is exceedingly intelligent. She's exceedingly charming. She has read all the books on political science that we all have read. Uh, you can have conversations with her on any subject that they are really high level, very good. She's is, by any standard, a remarkable person. At the same time, there is a problem here. The problem is both internal and external. The external problem for the United States is, and I say this very carefully, she has basically determined U.S. policy toward that country. That is unsound as a matter of principle. Nothing to do with Aung San Suu Kyi. I have argued that the United States does not should not rely on any one person for foreign policy on that particular country, including the British Prime Minister or the President of Mexico or Aung San Suu Kyi. The last time we did that, 
that I remember was the Shah of Iran. That was not very successful. So I, I think that she could be the kind of leader. But the question is then, what about her followers? I've asked this question, and this relates to the issue of the, of the development of institutions that we talked about earlier. And that is power in, in Myanmar, in my view, is highly personalized. It is not institutionalized, essentially. You are loyal to the head of your organization. Not, you, you are not loyal to the organization. So when General Kenyon was kicked out of military intelligence, he was sacked. You were eliminated military intelligence because you assumed everybody in that organization was loyal to Kenyon, not to the organization. So the problem is, this is how Than Shui operated. This is how Nei Win operated. Aung San Suu Kyi, within the NLD, not because of her preference, but because perhaps of her followers, treat her in that kind of role. And that is dangerous for democracy in the long run. And it is not her doing, and I want to stress that. But it is a problem in how power is conceived in that society, in my view. Very unacademic of me, but I think uh, it's, it is important. Um, so I think that she could be a good leader, but she has to understand the issues connected with assuring that, her, that there be moderation, that there be compromise, that she have access to a wide variety of views uh, from which then she can make decisions. Um, the question between economic and political governance and tension there, this is true. The National League for Democracy, until very recently, has always said, solve the political problems, and then we will solve the economic problems, we will solve the minority problems. I thought that was unsound from the beginning. These are parallel things that go together, that you have to address all of them. Uh, and they will not go together in sync either. They will be, there will be differences. So there is that tension. Um, and I think that we have to expect that there will continue to be that tension. But that does not mean you wait for a political solution before you do economic things. But there is a danger of getting too much economic aid in there, uncontrolled, too many people seeking advantage over the society, too less, little attention to the feelings of the people involved. All of those are real issues. Tom? Well, for, first on, on Aung San Suu Kyi, Burma is incredibly lucky to have her. I work on many countries around the world that suffer from terrible human rights problems where people struggle for democracy, and, and very few of them are blessed with a leader of her capacity, intelligence, stature, moral authority, and most importantly, broad national legitimacy. She is a unifying force in that country. Um, can she compromise? That is all she has been doing for the last 20 years. This used to make me very angry when people asked this question or when they portrayed her as somehow this stubborn figure, you know, who if only she would stop being so stubborn, we could solve this problem. All she was asking for for 20 years is dialogue. Let's talk. Let's come to an agreement that, that, that serves your interests and ours. Um, she was always the greatest champion of the Burmese military because her father was its, was its founder. Um, and, you know, if there was any doubt about her pragmatism and her willingness to compromise, look at the decisions that she's made in the last few months, her decision, very risky and controversial, to enter this parliament um, under a constitution which she believes is fundamentally illegitimate. 
um, and which her movement believes is fundamentally legitimate. Knowing that once she enters parliament, she would still not have power, but she would be conferring legitimacy upon the system. Um, very few people in her position would have taken that risk. Um, and she did, because she, found, she felt she had a partner in Thane Sane, and she wanted to give him the benefit of the doubt. Nelson Mandela would not have done what she did. Nelson Mandela refused to, to even renounce armed struggle in South Africa until he had a deal that resulted in every single political prisoner in the country being released, including political, well, pe people who were not political prisoners, but who were actually guilty of murder. Um, and she did. So, so that's very important. Now, David's point that we, we based our policy uh, on her, to a large extent that was true, that the U.S. government did give her a tremendous amount of influence over U.S. policy. And here I disagree with David. I think that was a very, very sound strategic call. What that did was to say to people within the Burmese military establishment, you want to make peace with us, with the United States? That's great. We'd like to do that. But you can't make a separate peace with us. You have to make peace with her first. If you want the sanctions eased or taken away, she's got to be okay with it. And what that did was to give her, was to transfer the enormous leverage we had to the democratic opposition in Burma and forced the government to bargain with her and with the NLD if it wanted a better relationship with the United States. That was the strategic concept that multiple administrations followed, and it worked. That's exactly what is happening now. Um, now, but I agree with David that now that she is a politician, now that she has entered parliament, um, I do think it's dangerous to continue to allow her to play that role. In fact, I think it's unfair to her to keep saying, everything we do is up to you. Because she has now multiple obligations, multiple roles, and there are many other, thankfully now, there are many, many other voices um, that have been allowed to be heard in, in Burma. And it's in our interest, for exactly the reasons David stated, to encourage the development of multiple um, leaders, institutions, voices, so it's not personalized. There, we totally agree. Um, on the economic point, I would just, I mean, I've said what, what, what I think. I, I, I would just leave you with a cautionary tale. We do not want Burma to turn into Cambodia. Uh, we do not want it to develop that way. We don't want it to be Russia in the 1990s. We've made these mistakes again and again and again. They don't need massive amounts of money from the outside world. They need institutional reform. Burma's leading economist, the, the leading economic advisor to, uh, the, to President Thane Sane, his metaphor is, look, our economy is like a car, and the car is broken. We need to fix the car before we put high-octane fuel in the tank. And I think he's right. Good. That's a nice segue to you, Anup. Uh, the tension between economic and political governance. All right. Let me make a couple of points on that. Let me try and make a positive, uh, take a, a positive approach. If you look very carefully at the reforms that Myanmar has announced they want to do, it clearly recognizes that Myanmar has a legacy of segmented markets, structures, activities, and institutions. I think this is clearly recognized. And what is more, if you look even more carefully at what they're saying and doing, there is recognition also that these segmented structures and institutions that they have inherited 
are a cause of low investment, lack of infrastructure, a financial system that is very tiny and segmented. If you look at just formal credit to GDP, one number, one ratio, it's just 8%, which is the smallest in the region. So what I'm trying to say is I think there is recognition in the announcements that they need to deal with these segmented structures. And if you look at the reforms they want to introduce, almost each of them are designed to reduce the segmentation. So I think there is more fundamental recognition of what they need to do. And these reforms are being announced by the government and the central bank. So I would like to believe that there is a building consensus that they need to deal with this. Now let me on a separate uh, point, maybe say something humorous. If I look back at what Myanmar can do, people say that the administrative capacity is weak, they don't have the uh, educated labor force. Let me just say that one of my earliest professors uh, was from Burma, no other than Professor Lamint at the LSE. And my first boss at the IMF was also from Burma, Mr. Tuntin. So it is quite a country. Do you want to add anything, Patrick? Yes, thank you. You know, it strikes me, if we had this panel two years ago, I think much of our discussion would have been limited to about two or three individuals in Burma. Mm -hmm. Senior General Tan Shui, his number two, Meng A, mm -hmm. and Aung San Suu Kyi. And in the context of Aung San Suu Kyi, it would have been our efforts to get her from, out from house arrest, and fairly singular with that objective. Now things are much different. Power has been diffused considerably, and there are a lot of actors, both in the government, within the military, and indeed within the democratic opposition. And as a matter of policy, we consult with all of these stakeholders, and there are diverse views. When it comes to Aung San Suu Kyi, I, I honestly don't think there's any shame in being guided and shaped by a courageous individual. Uh, when you think over history, we all know the names Gandhi, Vaclav Havel, uh, Nelson Mandela, um, Lech Walesa. It takes individuals to make change. And Aung San Suu Kyi has succeeded in doing so. Um, but the shaping and the influence, of course, has its limits. U.S. policy is driven by U.S. national interests. And uh, fair to say that there are a number of issues that we disagree with on San Suu Kyi on from time to time. And that's part of the dialogue we have. But I think the important thing is that there are many, many players in the country. She happens to be uh, perhaps the most symbolic of those who have made incredible personal sacrifice. I dare say there are other Aung San Suu Kyi figures inside that country. Given the opportunity to flourish, uh, the next time we have a panel like this, we will be talking about names unknown to us now. That's, a good point. That's within this population of, of, of talent. And if I could, just as a quick word, address the economic-political dichotomy that uh, the, the last questionnaire referred to. You know, it's interesting. When we talk about how should we readjust our policies towards the country, given the risk that a flood of, uh, of investment could disrupt the environment and could actually lead to instability. I think it's important to remember that, that, that Burma has a very challenged business climate. 
It's a very difficult place in which to operate. When we put in place in 1997 our investment ban, it didn't apply to a lot of companies. They had already left that place because of corruption, because of the opaque uh, nature of, of conducting official business, uh, a broken banking system. Not a lot has changed. And so I think you will find um, that the, the environment will be one that's slowly to evolve when it comes to uh, changing economy. Thank you. Um, yes, Tom. Just a, a two-finger on that one. I, I totally agree with you, Patrick, but therein lies the danger. That I think we found that precisely in these kinds of challenging environments where the business climate is not good and, and, and institutions are weak, the kind of investment you're likely to, you're least likely to get is right. the kind of investment that is most beneficial. The kind of investment you're most likely to get is pulling resources out of the ground because you actually don't need the framework that we'd like to see develop in order to make a lot of money quickly by pulling stuff out of the ground. And so I, I wouldn't be as sanguine uh, you know, as that in saying, well, you know, we don't have to worry because the business climate is bad. I'm worried precisely for that reason because you may get the wrong kind of investment if you don't maintain appropriate restrictions on, on, on things that will be harmful to the economic development of the country right now. Right. Rent-seeking flourishes in bad environments. I'm going to allow one more question because I'm very particular that we finish at 2 o'clock. Let's have one more question, and then I'm going to ask turn to the panelists for their last one-minute uh, uh, final statement. So who do we have for the final question? It's a big burden on the last questioner. <laughs> Yes, sir. Uh, get, wait for the mic. This is Shmuel Leonid. I study global affairs, global affairs, United Nations. I have a question. I'm interested in, uh, not um, only, only donations, donations uh, to country, to people inside Myanmar. Who give? Japan, China, U.S. and others, if you know, because not exactly everything is open. Who you and who received? All right. Uh, we'll try now. Let's not investment, donations. Let's get one more question. Maybe one more. Yes, sir. Uh, just a quick question uh, about Can the, you introduce uh, yourself, please? Uh, sorry. Uh, my name is Jay Park, the visiting fellow at CSIS currently. Uh, the ASEAN's uh, role over uh, Myanmar's reform and democracy, that's my question. The ASEAN established in 1967 has been well on track towards the community building in 2015. And Myanmar's case, just less than 15 years of membership in ASEAN, uh, they are, I think, uh, well constituting the, the part of ASEAN community building. The penultimate element here is the ASEAN chair, which is... Uh, I think in 2014. In 2006, uh, they were supposed to have the ASEAN chair, but with various reasons they couldn't. They skipped the chairmanship. So they were supposed to have 2016, but it seems that current Myanmar leadership wants, during their tenure, they would like to have the ASEAN meetings in a newly built capital of Nepido. So I, my question is, uh, what are the, the, the ASEAN chairs role in 2014 will have an impact on 2015's general election. Okay, so two questions. Where are private donations going? To whom? And from where are they coming? And secondly, ASEAN's role in the 2014 chairmanship of uh, Myanmar. Who would like to go first on that? David, why don't I turn to you? 
The 2014 chairmanship of ASEAN and its impact on the 2015 election, it should be significant. It will give legitimacy, additional legitimacy to the government. Um, what shape that government will be in by that time is another matter. Uh, ASEAN itself is trying to train people to handle that the big impact of the 2014 uh, chair because it's an enormous administrative burden on the country. And the country can't take it right now. But they are training people. They are going to be supplying uh, additional personnel. But I think it will have an impact. Um, the role Aung San Suu Kyi plays between now and then in support of this or in relation to it will be very important. I don't know what that will be. Uh, but I can see it being, being significant. And I think that one of the reasons why the government has been pushing to have that uh, chairmanship is, in fact, this whole question of legitimacy. Uh, also, of course, uh, foreign investment. The, the original uh, uh, timing of joining ASEAN in July two th uh, 1997 was terribly unfortunate because that was the month of the Asian financial crisis. So they didn't get the investment from ASEAN that I think they had hoped for. Um, first question, I am not sure I heard properly. The question was, where are private? Do are there private donations flowing into Myanmar? Where are they coming from? Donations. Do you mean Don donor money? Do you mean foreign aid or? Not aid. You're talking about private to private. Is that the? Private organizations. That yes. The NGOs. You yeah. mean or yeah. business? I think uh, he's talking about donations. So it's not business. It's, it's it's NGOs. NGO. Well, there are you know uh, over fifty certainly, maybe seventy or eighty. Uh, international NGOs operating in that country. There are a variety of uh, local NGOs that uh, also get foreign assistance directly uh, from people abroad and from uh, international NGOs. They have, they have a variety of programs in a wide spectrum of both geographic and, and fields. And uh, they, have, they affect a lot of things. They're trying to do very good things from rural development and agriculture to women to maternal child health care, education, and all kinds of things. So in that sense, I think they are okay. There is a danger, though. The dangerous Cambodia you talked about earlier. There was a story on the radio the other day about Kenya, the problem of international NGOs. They went in there with a measles vaccine. But five different international NGOs gave the measles vaccines to the same children, which made that they got the disease rather than were immune from it because there was no coordination. That is critical. All right. I, I am concerned about the time, so I want to wrap this up. I'm going to ask, starting with you, Patrick, let's go in reverse order. Anything that you wanted to say that you, that you weren't able to say? Yeah, well, thank you again for putting the panel together and everyone's interest. Uh, we, we view our approach as a matter of policy, a partnership, a partnership with the private sector, with the non-government community, with Congress, et cetera. And we truly do want to work together going forward, uh, particularly uh, in light of what, what Tom Manolowski offered a few moments ago as an example. Investment is a, is a tricky environment. Uh, and we don't think on any bilateral basis any single government um, can uh, uniquely and perfectly pave the path forward. 
And we want to work together with a variety of experts in, in shaping uh, the, best, the best way forward for the Burmese people. Um, specifically, creating those opportunities, I did want to refer to one action that we've taken in recent weeks. The Treasury Department Office of Foreign Assets Control issued a, a general license, that's the term of art, to allow a broader range of nonprofit activities uh, inside Burma. And that does open the door for academic institutions, human rights organizations, conservation groups, et cetera, uh, to begin some of the, the partnership that they've been wanting to, to do. And we think that will be helpful. Um, I, I do uh, also want to, in keying off the last question, uh, in, in the world I operate in, um, managing relations with Southeast Asia, I worry more about next week. Uh, than 2014. That's a long way away. Um, there are other opportunities and challenges on, on the much shorter term horizon. Um, in July, uh, Burma will assume its role as our dialogue partner for ASEAN. Um, so we will have to um, be in, in a mode of closer consultation for the coming years. And we think that's an opportunity for the, co the country to demonstrate uh, what it's talked about in terms of reforms and being a responsible member of the community. Um, we also have, of course, the current uh, chairmanship under the tutelage of, of uh, Cambodia. Um, and the ASEAN Regional Forum that will take place in July with Secretary Clinton's participation and many other countries will address a whole variety of issues. And on the margins, uh, we will host the next ministerial for the Lower Mekong Initiative, which for the first time will include Burma. And so this is important as we talk about uh, engagement and, and uh, pursuing um, responsible cooperation from, from Burma. So those are the first tests, in other words, before we think hypothetically what the, uh, what the environment will be two, two years down the road. I do want to uh, offer that the situation uh, is evolving so rapidly. As I stated at the uh, outset, in, in 18 months, the, the changes have been extremely dramatic and unpredictable. And, and I won't predict what the next 18 months will look like, except to offer I think they will be interesting. Um, and we, we welcome the future, and we embrace these changes that are taking place with eyes wide open. And I want that to just be my final word. There is unfinished business, and we will remain squarely focused on ensuring that reform is supported um, and that areas that are, are still troubling will be addressed. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you. Vikram, thank you. Well, let me just make one final point, and I would say that if you look at where we've come from in the world, very often we see economic reforms going in parallel with political reforms. Very often we've seen economic reform, in fact, leading political reform. We see now in Myanmar, they want to build new economic institutions. It's a very important step. I think it will have much wider consequences. We and they have got to demonstrate to their people that carrying out these reforms is not going to lead to new instabilities, such as inflation. It's a very important step. Economic reforms are very important. It's an important first step. And Vikram, I think you are under a challenge too. You've got to have this same session again, either two years from now or yep. six months from now. Definitely should do that. Thank you, Anup. Tom. Thanks. If, if you'd asked me to sum up Burma on a three-by-five card a few years ago, I would have said that the basic problem is that you have one side led by Aung San Suu Kyi that has all of the legitimacy 
and none of the power. And another side, led by the military, that has none of the legitimacy and all of the power. And that the only solution for this country was to find some way of marrying legitimacy and power by those forces coming together. And the, the good news is that that's exactly what Aung San Suu Kyi and Thane Sein are trying to do right now. That's been their joint project, at least to this point. She has taken the risk of lending some of her legitimacy to his government. And the question over the next couple of years is, will the military be willing to give up some of its power to that same arrangement, to that civilian government that, that sort of unites leaders from, from both sides? I, I could still see that going relatively smoothly. And, and maybe the, you know, the ASEAN festivities in 2014 and the tension that that brings will, will be another incentive for, for, uh, for there not to be a divorce uh, in that marriage. But I can also see a lot of tension ahead because, as we all know, people who have a lot of power don't like to give it up. Um, and will they do so when, when push comes to shove? So this is only the beginning. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi was asked at the beginning of the year uh, on a 1 to 10 scale of democracy, where is Burma? And she said, we're approaching 1. Um, I'm actually a little more optimistic than that. But it's still at the <laughs> we're still at the very, very beginning. And the fundamental tests have not yet been, been passed. And so we need to, as Patrick said, and this is the key word, calibrate our policy. We should not declare success. If we want success in Burma, we shouldn't declare it too early. We need to really stay focused over the next three years and, and husband the leverage that we have for, for what could still be a bumpy role. And then finally, the lesson I think we've learned over the last few years is that the country that matters most to Burma is the United States. Um, it wasn't ASEAN that did this. It wasn't China. Um, at the end of the day, the country that was the key to the leadership sense of, of, of legitimacy in the world, their desire to be on better terms with the wider world, was the United States. They came to us. We may not have more, you know, as much investment as the Europeans and the Japanese and the Chinese, certainly not put together. But what the United States does there is politically more important, I think, than any other country. And that's a, that's a responsibility that needs to be um, used wisely. Thanks. David, you have the last word. Let me say that I think that these reforms are um, the, the most encouraging developments in this country in a half century. I think the reforms cannot be rescinded in toto, but the reforms are fragile. They are likely to continue at varying paces. There are likely to be lots of frustrations. There are very important elements in support of these reforms that we should be considering. One is that the reforms themselves are seen to be Burmese. They are not foreign. For foreigners to take credit for this would be a mistake given the highly nationalistic elements in that society. So the people who say sanctions brought, reform, brought reforms are wrong. People who say against sanctions people who uh, are still wrong as well. These are Burmese reforms, and they should be seen that way. We should be supportive of these reforms, but we should not take credit for these reforms. That is, I think, uh, critical. It is a pleasure to say, and um, people in the State Department have commented that I think for 20 years I have been against both Republicans and Democratic policy toward Burma. 
And it's a pleasure to be able to say that I am no longer against <laughs> U.S. policy, that I am quite supportive of it. I think that the policy has been uh, very sound. And I think that we should uh, watch that very carefully, respond uh, uh, judiciously to these new reforms, and to be open about this. And if I may, on one academic note, a year and a half or so ago, the Myanmar Times, which is a controlled paper by the government, a weekly, said, would I write an article about the Obama administration's change in policy and how it has increased interest academically in Myanmar? And I said, that is wrong. I said, the Obama administration policy has not increased interest in Myanmar. Aung San Suu Kyi has increased interest in Myanmar, and you are not going to print that. And they wrote back and said, yes, we are not going to print that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you very much. Look, I can't say anything more to this. I want to thank you for being a terrific uh, audience, and our panel has been superb. Thank you.